and pray as we come to hear God's Word. Father in heaven, we come this morning as people in need of, of help and hope that comes from your Word. And Lord, so we ask that you would humble us to receive your Word. We pray you'd humble our minds and hearts, whatever it is that's going on in our minds and hearts this morning that might get in the way of us listening to your word. Lord, we pray you'd remove that. We pray you'd focus the attention of our hearts on who you are and what you've done in your son Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word, Lord, to be called here to this local body, to preach and to shepherd. Lord, I pray you'd help me and strengthen me by the power of your Holy Spirit to preach as I ought, to preach faithfully, to preach in ways that would honor you and exalt your son Jesus, that together we would rejoice in him. We ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a few minutes ago, we sang the hymn Amazing Grace, and I mentioned before the pastoral prayer, I'd share a little bit more about the man who wrote that hymn, John Newton, a well-known 18th century pastor. But Amazing Grace, it's, it's him recounting his conversion to Christianity. Uh, the wretch he's talking about is himself. It's about his turning to Christ all by God's grace. You see, before he put his faith in Jesus Christ, he was a depraved sailor, a, a captain of a ship in the African slave trade based out of England, a, a man who sold other human beings into slavery. It's the man who wrote this song, Amazing Grace. And as he wrote in the hymn, he was a wretch, but God found him. In God's amazing grace, he was saved. And God saved him and took him from the slave trade, repenting of his sin, to eventually serve as a pastor for 43 years in England. In keeping with repentance, and part of his ministry and what he sought to do publicly was to go on to oppose the slave trade in England. Working with a politician there, you might be familiar with William Wilberforce. We're working to try to abolish, and by God's grace, they were successful. And he lived to see the slave trade abolished there in England. You see, his life was wrapped up in what this hymn, what we just sang about, God's amazing grace had a grip on his life. He was changed by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. And even as he grew old and began to lose his memory, he still stood in awe of God's amazing grace to him. Being quoted at the end of his life, and you might be familiar with this quote, being quoted as saying he could remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. See, we sang that song this morning if by God's grace you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's what it means to have become a Christian. That if that's happened in your life, that you would sing as well about God's amazing grace that saved you. It's through His amazing grace alone that He's sustaining you to walk in obedience to His commands. And until you go to be with the Lord in this next life, you have the hope and the comfort and the assurance that the same God who saved you by His grace in Christ is the God who will keep you and sustain you until the end. As we study in the book of Galatians here today, we see another wretch. Well, one I'm sure that John Newton had in mind when he wrote this hymn. Another wretch that was saved by God's amazing grace as we look at the testimony of the Apostle Paul. We see how he was transformed by God's amazing grace from being a murderer 
to becoming a missionary for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 1, starting in verse 11. Calvin just read this passage for us a few minutes ago for us to hear this before we dive into it as a church. If you want to take a copy of the Bible right in front of you, and you want to turn to page 972, the best way to stay engaged with the sermon is to open up a copy of the Bible and to track along as we go through this passage. Page 972 this morning, Galatians 1, starting in verse 11. We're going to go through chapter 2, verse 10. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, uh, use that Bible this morning, and then we want to give that Bible to you as a gift. So take it home, read it, come back with it next Sunday morning. We'll be in Isaiah next Sunday morning in the Old Testament. And then if you'd like to read the Bible with a member of our church, just see one of our pastors at any of the doors afterwards, or talk to a member of our church that would happen to be around you. Galatians 1, chapter 11. Let me give you the main idea up front. If you're taking notes, the main idea of this sermon, the gospel transforms sinners to testify to God's grace. The gospel transforms sinners to testify to God's grace. So we see in the life of the Apostle Paul, but that's what you see in your life if you're a Christian, in our life together as a local church. A little bit of context, so we just kicked off Galatians last week. If you're new to our church, uh, you can jump right in this morning. But a little context that also helps us review. Uh, the book of Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches that he helped to plant in a region known as Galatia, modern-day Turkey is where we believe that would be located. Now, not long after he left and planted, had planted those churches, some false teachers came in and preached a different gospel, a different message than what Paul had preached to them. And Paul points that out and reminds them there is no other gospel. To try to add to the gospel of God's grace in Christ is to lose it. There is no other gospel. In this section here in chapter 1, verse 11, he's defending his apostleship to point to the reliability of the message that he proclaimed. So he, he was not called to be an apostle by other men, and his message was not man-made. And the proof that he provides here at the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 is the story of how he became a Christian. It's the story of how God's amazing grace transformed his life to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Well, as we make our, our way through this passage this morning, again, we're going to stop in chapter 2, verse 10. I want us to see three statements on the gospel. Three statements I want to give you that are drawn from this text. The first one we find in verses 11 through 12, the gospel comes from heaven, not from humans. It's the first statement that I'm taking out of this text I want you to see. The gospel comes from heaven, not from humans. Now, we see right away in verse 11 that Paul wants the Galatians to be clear. He wants them to be confident that the gospel, the good news he preached to them when they were converted, is not a message that people came up with. That the gospel comes from God. It originates with Him. It's a heavenly message, not a man-made message. So verse 11 serves as his main argument. Verse 11 is his thesis statement. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's 
gospel. So the message that that Paul preached to the Galatians during his first missionary journey, it's a message that's not of man, meaning it doesn't originate with man. It's not man's gospel, and it's not from man. He continues in verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man. It's, It's a heavenly message that came to him from God the Father through an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 12, Paul reminds them of how it was that he received that gospel. Look at the end of verse 12. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, you received the gospel from another human being. Another human being told you the Word of God. Well, maybe you have a testimony where you were reading the Bible. Well, someone gave you that Bible. Uh, Some Christian was responsible for publishing that Bible. But the point is that you heard this through another human being. The Apostle Paul says that's not his testimony. He heard the the gospel directly from the risen Lord Jesus. But what we see here in Galatians 1, it's really more of a brief overview of what is spelled out in greater detail in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9. I'll reference that briefly this morning. That's a great passage to go and read here later today or sometime this week, Acts 8, Acts 9, you're going to hear more about this testimony of how it is the Apostle Paul received revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel was revealed to him in Acts chapter 9 when he was on the road to Damascus. Now, this revelation that he mentions here, a revelation is an unveiling. A revelation is a a disclosure, a, a removal of that which conceals. So Paul had heard about Jesus. I think he had heard the gospel. He had heard people saying, Jesus has risen from the dead. He knew that Jesus died. He knew that Jesus was buried. He knew that people were claiming that Jesus was risen from the dead, and he hated that message. He stood opposed to that message. So the revelation was the unveiling. How did he go from being lost to found? Blind, but seeing. He says, well, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the importance of this historical moment in Acts chapter 9 of his conversion is that he didn't receive the gospel through a human agency. And and he's sharing, therefore, he's not been controlled by a human agenda or a human motivation to preach the gospel. It seems like that's what that false teachers, that group of false teachers in Galatia was trying to undermine his credibility and say, I don't listen to Paul's gospel. He doesn't have the gospel right. He's saying here, well, my gospel didn't come from other people. It was revealed to him. He saw with his own eyes Jesus Christ risen from the dead. You see, the Christian faith, it involves a message. I've asked people this before who don't know Jesus. Do you like Jesus, but not his message? I mean, sometimes the idea of Jesus seems popular in our society, like seems like a good guy, seems like a good teacher, he's an inspirational figure. Well, common thought tends to be, well, if he helps you live a good life and helps you be a better person and a better neighbor, well, then that's a wonderful thing. That's your truth. Sometimes people like the idea of Jesus, but not his message. His message being that we've sinned against the God who created us. We've been created by God. God designed us. We were His thought. The reason we are living and breathing this morning is because God created us. And the problem that we have, that the gospel tells us, the message of Jesus, is that we have sinned against this God. 
The sin is more than just, ah, we kind of mess up a little bit. The sin is that we've rejected the God who created us, rejected his loving authority over our lives. And the gospel tells us that God is right to judge us for our sins. Indeed, he will. He will judge each of us on that last day. But in God's amazing grace and his love, his mercy and his kindness, the good news is that Jesus, the eternal son of God, came down to earth. He didn't come down to earth just to be an ethics teacher or to somehow inspire a few people to live a better life. He came down to earth to die to lay his life down and die on the cross to save and to redeem sinful people, to redeem anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in him for forgiveness of their sin against God. And God proved, God showed that Jesus' death on the cross was acceptable because on the third day, God raised him from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan conquered death, rising from the dead, and he extends this new life, forgiveness of sins, free righteousness from God, unity with the God who created you to anyone who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Paul's saying that he came to believe all of this by Jesus himself appearing to him on this Damascus road through revelation. Now, we'll get to that story a little bit more in the next section, but it's important to understand The gospel, Christians, that we believe, it's not speculation. It comes from revelation. It's not just man's speculative thoughts about God. It's God revealing himself to sinful people. In other words, the gospel is not speculation, but it is a declaration that comes by revelation. The gospel originates with God. It's a message about him and his pursuit to save sinful people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his eternal Son. To change that message by either adding to it or subtracting from it is to lose it altogether. In other words, in in the words of my sister Chrysios, who said to me last Sunday after service, I said, you said it better than I did. Don't edit the Bible. Edit yourself. I love that. Good line. Don't edit the Bible. It doesn't need to be edited. Let the Bible edit you and change you. The gospel, it comes from heaven, not from humans. Next, in verses 13 through 24, a second statement that I want us to see about the gospel. The gospel transforms sinners to testify. The gospel transforms sinners to testify. Now, the only explanation for the transformation in Paul's life on the road to Damascus, again in Acts 9, you can read about this, to persecute Christians, the only explanation of the change of his life is that the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him physically. It wasn't a dream, not a hallucination, a physical appearance and revealed the gospel to him. So verse 13 kicks off a part of Paul's story of his life. And keep in mind, this is a testimony here. So it's definitely got some autobiographical content. But a testimony is different from an autobiography. An autobiography tends to record your accomplishments, uh, the story of your life, where you grew up in, kind of what was your situation when you were younger, something like that. And it traces through your education, your achievements, your accomplishments. In, In a Christian testimony, make no mistake, you can't leave a Christian testimony thinking the individual 
is the hero to be admired. In Christian testimony, Christ is the hero. He's the one that is exalted. A Christian testimony is about his accomplishment, what he achieved through his finished work, dying on the cross and rising from the dead. A Christian testimony is about his grace that transformed your life. A Christian testimony is a beautiful recounting of God's amazing grace. You know, think about our baptism Sundays that we've had here. So raise your hand if you've been here for baptism Sunday. All right, most of you in the room. Lord willing, we will fill this tank soon, and you'll be here to experience another one of them. It's our tradition for the one being baptized to share their testimony of God's saving grace. And you hear all kinds of stories because people come from different places and backgrounds, and some people had heard the gospel through their parents, and some people, maybe they didn't have parents who were Christians, and they heard the gospel from a classmate or a co-worker. Different stories, different people, different ages, all the way from 15 to in your 80s, baptized all different types of people here at this church. But there's one common theme of their testimony. The blood of Christ saved my soul. Think about our baptism testimonies on, on Sunday morning. Why is there not a dry eye in our building often when these testimonies are given. Well, it's because stories of God's grace in Jesus, they're beautiful. They're joyful. They're humbling. If you're a Christian and you're listening to someone else's testimony, you're reminded listening to them recount God's amazing grace of His grace in your life. It's a humbling, sobering moment as we recount God's amazing grace, His work to save and to transform. And let me be clear, every testimony is a story of God's amazing grace. You hear something like the Apostle Paul, I mean, kind of living crazy life, trying to murder Christians, and then you hear testimonies in this church, kind of like mine, of God saving you at a young age. And sometimes people wrongly think, well, if I was saved at like five or six, you know, what was I really doing wrong at five or six besides stealing my brother's toys and maybe disobeying my parents and being put in time out? It just doesn't seem as bad as this person's. And sometimes people wrongly, when they get older, think, well, I don't really have a testimony. That's a wrong thinking. First off, I'd say every parent in this room, I think it'd be our prayer that God saves our kids at a very young age, that God spares them from going off and living lives of immorality that that can often be difficult lives. Regardless of your testimony, it's all a testimony of God's amazing saving grace. Every sin is enough to condemn us before a holy God. We can't bring ourselves to God. We can't save ourselves. So every testimony, Christ is the hero. He saved us. Now in verses 13 and 14, we read of Paul's testimony. And in this section, he talks about his former hostility to Christianity. Notice in verse 13 the phrase, my former life. That's what a testimony recounts. It recounts your former life because becoming a Christian is about receiving a new life. So there's a former life and then a new life, a change from old to new. And a Christian testimony speaks of a former life and a change to a new life. You know, I think about something simple like that. A testimony in itself isn't sharing the gospel. It can often be a way to transition into sharing the gospel. Two powerful moments. I know we got a lot of college students here this morning. Two powerful moments when I was a college student at UNC Charlotte. One on the ninth floor of Moore Hall, a freshman dorm, which no longer exists. But back then, 500 students. Uh, at a time that I really wasn't walking with the Lord, I went down the hall one night to, to see this guy. We were going to go out that night. 
And I looked on the wall, and his roommate had a verse uh, written on the wall in glow-in-the-dark paint. That was really cool in the late 90s, glow-in-the-dark paint, black lights in your dorm room. And uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 was the verse. It said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, that looks very different from things that were on the wall of other guys on that dorm floor. And it stood out to me, and I just asked him, I was like, hey, what is that about, man? And he's like, oh, well, I became a Christian like two years ago. And he kind of just shared his testimony very briefly, which I was shocked to hear someone on my dorm floor testifying about God's grace in Christ. It was a powerful moment, old life, new life. Uh, the second moment, I remember, also had to do with a testimony. This is how testimonies can transition into sharing the gospel. Uh, fast forward two years later, by God's grace, I was walking with the Lord. I think God used that freshman year of college really to bring me to a place where I had to recognize it's not possible to serve two masters. You've got to make a choice. And by God's grace, He worked in my life, surrounded me with people uh, that pointed me to the truth of God's Word, and I repented of the way I was living. I think I already was a Christian when I was younger, but the Lord used that moment, I think, to help me grow spiritually. And I was at a big brother, little brother event in my fraternity, and a new guy came up to a new guy in the fraternity. And back in those days, all of my fraternity brothers were doing what most college students were doing, consuming alcohol. And I had a big bottle of yellow soda called Surge, if you remember that, in the late 90s, really high in caffeine and sugar. That was kind of my jam. And I took Surge while they were consuming alcohol. And he came up to me, he's like, why are you drinking Surge? And I was like, yeah, let me just tell you my testimony about what God's done in my life. And as I talked to him, he put his beer down and he looked at me and he said, that's what I want. I want a life with Christ. And he came to Christ that summer, still walking with the Lord today. The power of a testimony, former life, new life, God gets the glory and what he's done in Jesus Christ. Brother and sister, share your testimony with others. Just tell others your story and then transition into the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's telling his story here about his former life and his new life. And part of his testimony and his story, his former life there, you notice that he references his former life in Judaism. Now, Paul ended up departing from the teaching of Judaism, but he remained ethnically Jewish. That's really important. He departed from the teaching of Judaism because he believed that Jesus is the Messiah, died on the cross, substitutionary death, risen from the dead, but he remained ethnically Jewish. And some of you, that's your story here this morning. You're ethnically Jewish. You've put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you follow Jesus. Your faith is in the teaching of Christ and his gospel, not Judaism. Like Paul, you found new life in Jesus and his gospel. That's important to note there because Paul is saying that's my former life. He remained ethnically Jewish, but he believed a different message than what Judaism was teaching. We see at the end of verse 13, in his former life, Paul persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So he gave himself to pursuing Christians violently, physically attacking them, seeking to destroy them, to kill them. If you look back in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, he was stoned, he was killed for proclaiming the gospel. And in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, there's Paul, formerly known as Saul, it says this, and Saul approved of his execution. He approved, that's what he wanted to happen. He wanted Christians to be executed and killed. Continue on in chapter 8 of Acts, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, again, this is formerly Paul, 
was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's his testimony. Violent persecution connected to what Paul considered at that time his zeal for God. Verse 14, you read his resume. He was the rising leader of Judaism in Jerusalem, more zealous for the traditions of Judaism than his peers. He tried to destroy the church because he had a zeal. He was passionate, enthusiastic. Think about that. Young, passionate, enthusiastic. It's good to be young and passionate. If you're not passionate when you're young or enthusiastic, something's wrong. You don't need to get cynical until you're in your 40s. Just kidding. But if you're young, like being passionate and being enthusiastic, like that's really important to a lot of people. But are you passionate and enthusiastic about the truth? You see, Paul wrongly thought at the time that he was serving God and pleasing God with his zeal, his violence, his persecution against Christians. And you see in Paul's testimony, you can be passionate and zealous and you can be wrong. You can be passionate and going the wrong direction. You can be deeply committed to something that is evil and wrong. What matters is not your passion, but the object of your passion. Are you zealous? Is your zeal attached to truth? Is your zeal attached to the truth found in God and what He's done in Jesus? That's a zeal that every Christian is to have. That's a zeal that we see God transforming Paul to have. You see, his testimony is one of the major apologetics or defenses of the Christian faith. Uh, think about it, how you just heard he was living his life. What would make him seem like a likely convert to follow Jesus? His testimony of going from one who was persecuting the church to one who was proclaiming Christ and planting churches, it provides important evidence for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul must really have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ and been with him. The evidence of his transformation from murderer to missionary can only be explained by what we see in verses 15 and 16. And here we see in these verses God's sovereign grace in salvation. And Paul uses three terms here to speak of God's sovereign grace. The three terms set apart, called, revealed. That's God's divine initiative in his life. He was set apart, called, and we see the word revealed. First, God set Paul apart. That's verse 15. But when he would set me apart, before I was born. In other words, God determined beforehand that Paul would be saved and called into service as an apostle. God determined that before he was born, which is amazing because we're seeing that Paul is living his life in rebellion to God uh, doing what's wrong, violently persecuting and opposing the church. But God had already that whole time set him apart for God's own purposes. It doesn't say God set him apart in his adult life. It said God set him apart before he was born. In other words, Paul's transformation is all by God's grace, entirely a work of God, for Paul was not even born yet, 
when God had set him apart. Now, to be sure, Paul's story is like yours and unlike yours. Unlike yours in that he was an eyewitness to the risen Lord Jesus. We're all witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, but there are no eyewitnesses in this room to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. If you are, please come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to hear the story. Right? But, but the apostles, eyewitnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, they, they saw him. Right? That's something unique about Paul. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he was called to be an apostle, which we've already said, that office, it lived and it died with those men. So the story is unique, but there are certainly similarities between his testimony and the testimony of every Christian. We've been through the book of Ephesians before, and what he says here in Galatians about being set apart from his mother's womb sounds a lot like what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, which Daniel prayed about and thank God for this morning. He's talking about Christians collectively in Ephesians 1 through 4, all Christians who put their faith in Jesus. Verse 4 of Ephesians 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God's sovereign grace was at work in Paul's life. It's the only explanation for the transformation seen in his life. And his sovereign grace has worked in the life of every redeemed sinner. It's our common testimony as Christians. So first, God set Paul apart. Second, God called Paul. He was set apart before he was born. And this led to a very specific time he was called by God. That's the road to Damascus. Verse 15 continues on, and who called me by his grace. Uh, The word called here doesn't mean like calling on your phone, hoping that you'll pick up the phone. And I know that if that's you this morning, you're under the age of 40, you don't pick your phone up. You just press ignore right away unless it's mom or dad, right? You wait for the text message to come through. So this isn't like just calling hoping that you'll somehow pick up the phone. The word calling here refers to an effectual call, a call that has a result to it. In other words, God was calling Paul, drawing Paul to himself, called him to repent and believe in Jesus, and your calling comes at your conversion. This calling, all by grace, him going from murderer to missionary, It can only be attributed to God calling him by his amazing grace. And then third, God revealed Jesus to Paul. That's verse 16. God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Well, why did God reveal his son to Paul? Was it because of anything good Paul did? No, he just says God was just pleased to do it. He revealed his son because it pleased him. It's God's pleasure. In Paul's former life, he he knew that Jesus died on the cross. He did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, so he couldn't have believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. But Paul came to believe that Jesus rose from the dead because he saw Jesus with his own eyes. He became an eyewitness to the resurrection, proving that Jesus' death on the cross indeed was a substitutionary death. It wasn't a normal Roman execution. In fact, what happened there, Paul came to believe, was Jesus dying in the place of sinners like himself, and that changed everything for the apostle Paul. Set apart, called by grace, Jesus revealed to him, 
sent him on his way to preach to the Gentiles, to the nations outside of Israel, and all of it happened by God's sovereign grace. Well, Paul's testimony was evidence that the gospel he preached was not a man-made message. In verses 18 through 24, he continues on with his story after his conversion and returns back to his thesis to show that the gospel he preached was not a man-made message. In verse 18, three years after Paul's conversion, that's what most believe that means, three years after his conversion, he went up to Jerusalem, the headquarters of Christianity, for a 15-day visit. He went to visit Peter. You see his name there in Aramaic, Cephas. The only other apostle in Jerusalem, he said he saw in verse 19, James, the Lord's brother, who when Jesus was crucified, James didn't believe in Jesus, but somehow he became a Christian. Well, he saw the risen Lord Jesus and put his faith in Jesus. Now, now why mention this visit? Well, he's establishing he was only in contact with two apostles, and that came three years after his conversion. He's showing that he preached the same gospel as the apostles who came before him, like Peter and James, but he did not receive the gospel from those apostles. He wasn't in contact with them. He received the gospel directly from Jesus. He also didn't receive the gospel from other existing churches. He shows there in verse 21 and 22, the majority of the existing churches at that time, they weren't connected to him. He was, un- he was unknown in person to them. Yet, the point, they preached the same gospel. And while Paul was unknown in person to those churches, his testimony of God's saving grace in his life was not unknown to them. We see in verse 23, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. He received the gospel message independent of other apostles in these churches, yet he was not independent of them in spirit. They were united in Christ, and they didn't doubt Paul's conversion. Rather, they marveled at God's grace and gave God the glory. Well, what do we learn about God from Paul's story? Well, simply put, Christ is the hero. That's the power of a Christian testimony, the power of God's amazing grace exalted in Jesus Christ. Paul seemed like the most unlikely convert. And there may be someone here this morning, sometimes people, what what keeps them from thinking they need to put their faith in Christ is they just think they're not that bad. Well, that's a problem. It means you don't see sin or agree with God the way He sees your sin. But there's other people, and maybe someone here this morning thinks you've done something so bad that God would never forgive you of your sin. Something so bad you don't want anyone in this room to know it. And this testimony tells us God forgives sin, period. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross was powerful to overcome any sin. Look at what God did with a murderer living his life in opposition to God. And yet Paul was forgiven, and you will be too if you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. And that's something you can do this morning. Come and see one of us afterwards at the door. Come talk to someone around you about what it would look like to be forgiven of your sin against God now and forevermore. Christian, God's amazing grace, it must influence our evangelism. I wonder who's the Saul in your life. The person you look at and think, man, they are not a good candidate for Christianity. If we're honest, we think like that far too often. We think, oh, this neighbor's really nice, and like he talks to me. Maybe he'd be interested in Christianity. 
Well, this one gets drunk all the time, lives a really immoral life. I don't think he's interested. It's just a terrible way to think. It, it minimizes the, the saving power of God's amazing grace. And if we're honest, we all are tempted to think like that sometimes. Remember Paul's testimony. And I ask you, Christian, who have you grown weary of praying for their salvation? Who have you grown tired of proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ to? Who have you wrongly ruled out and just said they don't seem like a good candidate to Christianity? Who have you stopped trying to start conversations with? The, the answer to that, brothers and sisters, set your eyes to the power of God in the gospel. His gracious call is far more powerful than any sinner. Christ conquered sin, dying on the cross, rising from the dead. He's full of power and mercy and grace to save those who turn to Him. It is our duty, our privilege and responsibility to share the gospel with those around us, and it is God's duty to save. We deliver. You're the mail carrier. He's the one at the end of the day that saves somebody, brings them to new life in Christ, and that reality should give us confidence and boldness to share the gospel broadly. Pray for opportunities, even this week, and see what happens. When's the last time you prayed for an opportunity to share the gospel? Well, pray that right now, silently. See what God would do this week. And look to proclaim the gospel. If you don't know how to share the gospel or you don't feel like you've got a brief gospel presentation, come see me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you about or see any of our pastors. We'd love to talk with you about sitting down, have a cup of coffee, helping you think through that. The, the, the best method for evangelism is the message and having a clear one. And we'd love to help you in thinking through proclaiming the gospel. Well, third and final statement there in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the gospel unites all kinds of people. The gospel unites all kinds of people. Here in chapter 2, Paul refers to another trip he made to Jerusalem. Again, in verse 1, this is probably 14 years after his conversion. So a significant amount of time has passed between his two visits. And in this section, we read that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they recognized Paul as an apostle, and they recognized the gospel that he preached as the true gospel. So the same gospel they believed and preached there in Jerusalem, the headquarters of Christianity at that time, that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, they recognized that gospel. Even though Paul did not need validation of his preaching the gospel, meaning the truth is the truth regardless of whether someone validates it, he didn't need that, but it was validated by the pillar apostles. You see them named there, James, Peter, and John. So let's look at a few details here of this account. In verse 1, Paul took Barnabas, a fellow worker who was Jewish, and he took Titus, a fellow worker in the gospel who was a Gentile. We see that down in verse 3. He was a Gentile, which means he would not have been circumcised. Now, if you want to know what circumcision is, uh, Pastor Johnny is right up here. You can see him afterwards, and he will talk to you about that. Just kidding. I told the staff I'd do that on Johnny. He was on vacation this week. It's a surprise for him. A basic understanding of circumcision is that circumcision was the cutting off of the foreskin. It was an external identification with the covenant. So circumcision was an external sign of devotion and commitment to the Lord. It was required in the Old Testament law to be marked off as God's 
people. To, to refuse that sign was rebelling against God. And in this private meeting with the leaders in Jerusalem, Paul laid out for them the gospel he was preaching. And it's important because the gospel he was preaching is that salvation is found in Christ alone. The false gospel that the false teachers back in Galatia were arguing for was Jesus plus submission to the Old Testament law, namely Jesus plus circumcision. And what's noteworthy here is that when Paul laid out for them the gospel he was preaching in Jerusalem, they agreed with him. We read at the end of verse 3 that Titus was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem agreed with Paul. They didn't think that Titus needed to be circumcised to be counted as part of the people of God. In other words, they believe the same gospel. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone to all who would repent and place their faith in Him. Yet we see there was a group there in Jerusalem that did not agree with this. So just like false teachers in Galatia, also a group there in Jerusalem, which means they can show up anywhere. I mean, if Peter, James, and John are there, it means false teachers can show up anywhere. And Paul refers to them in verse 4 as false brothers. They'd slipped in the church. They seemed like Christians. They were calling themselves Christians. They even affirmed some Christian doctrine. They believed in Jesus' death and resurrection. They believed that He was the Messiah. Yet Paul says they were not genuine Christians, but rather false brothers. Not just mistaken on points of doctrine. False brothers, not Christians. Well, why? Well, they believed and preached a different gospel. And remember, Paul's already established that there is no other gospel. These false brothers were maintaining that Titus would need to be circumcised, submit to the Old Testament law in order to be saved. They demanded Jesus plus something, Jesus plus circumcision for Gentile believers to be included in the people of God, yet their message did not prevail. We read in verse 5, they did not yield in submission to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The moments summed up there in verse 6, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. The apostles in Jerusalem added nothing to the gospel that Paul preached. The gospel was not Jesus plus anything. Not Jesus' death and resurrection plus circumcision. We read in verses 7 through 9, not only did they not add anything, but they gave the right hand of fellowship, which really was an, an ancient way of vowing partnership. The right hand of fellowship, recognizing Paul as a fellow apostle and a partner in the ministry of the gospel. It's important to note that James and Peter and John, they did not confer any authority on Paul. These three pillar apostles, they didn't give Paul any authority they didn't already have. Rather, they just recognized it. They recognized what Jesus had already done. They, received, they acknowledged, in other words, that Paul had received the gospel independent of them. And they recognized him as a fellow apostle, one that they would share the message with. We read down in verse 9, that they perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Look at the picture here. One gospel, two cultures, one message. Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, two cultures, one message. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. This certainly didn't mean that Paul would not evangelize the Jews. He did that first when he stopped in every place that he went. 
Rather than that the other apostles recognized Jesus himself had entrusted Paul as an apostle that would lead the way in taking this message to the ends of the earth, to those outside of Israel, to the Gentiles. And this message of gospel, of the gospel, it brought unity, a united mission to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth for all to hear. And the final request, it kind of seems odd there, tacked on in verse 10. Like, all right, now here's a a final request in verse 10 for Paul to remember the poor. I think that refers to the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem. And Paul acknowledged he was eager to do that. This could have been lining up with Acts chapter 11, referring to support for the famine that was there in Jerusalem. But again, the picture here is one of unity that the gospel brings. There is unity between these apostles Unity between these different churches from different regions. Unity between Jew and Gentile believers. Unity found in Jesus Christ and His gospel. It's the only thing that can explain Jew and Gentile coming together. Those who were formerly opposed to one another, now one people. The picture here, pre-conversion, God's amazing grace to save Paul as he was opposing and persecuting Christians. Conversion... The moment that God's amazing grace called and saved him, and post-conversion, God's amazing grace transforming him to be united with other Christians. Brothers and sisters, this local church reflects what every true gospel church reflects, unity found in Jesus Christ. Our unity is not in our age or our generation. Our unity is not in our cultural backgrounds. Our unity is not in our common interests. Our unity is not even in our proximity of friendship. Sometimes people wrongly think that. Well, how do you do that beyond a church of 40 people? If you think you can be friends with everyone in a church of 100, think about that again. It's not even about relational proximity. It's meaning that the unity is found in a person, in Jesus. Unity is found in the gospel, his message. Unity is not something that we build. Rather, unity is given to us. Unity is not our idea. Unity is God's gift. It's blood-bought by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And you and I, if you've put your faith in Jesus, repented of your sin, you get to live out that unity as we together rejoice in Jesus Christ. Together we praise Him with one voice, and together we seek to proclaim Him to this city and to the nations. And brothers and sisters in Christ, together may our cry in the gospel be what we're about to sing here in a minute. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be, my only boast is you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Let's bow and pray before we sing that. Father in heaven, we Pray as we've given our time and our attention here to considering your amazing grace, that by the power of your Spirit, that you would continue to call our minds and our hearts to be attentive to that grace. It's so easy to leave here and to forget what we've talked about, to leave here and be distracted from the truth of your Word. Lord, we need continual reminders, and so we pray that this morning would serve as a a reminder that would stir us up to walk in the joy of the gospel, the freedom, the joy of having been set free from the bondage and slavery of sin, trusting in the one who perfectly fulfilled your law and laid his life down to set us free from sin. May we rejoice in him this morning and may you use this local body to serve one another, to build each other up 
and to spread the gospel together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.